Okay, good evening. So this app is a little bit creepy because、uh, I cannot see. Oh, there is Fahim. Thank you, Fahim, to joining.、Uh, the app is glitchy. I cannot see who has joined、uh, earlier. So appreciate it.、Uh, I will just、uh, give two more minutes and I'll get started, Fahim. Okay, I'll get started. So today is、uh, June the eighteenth, twenty twenty three. It's a Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to whoever is going to listen later, and of course to Fahim if you are a father. And、uh, I have sent out an update、uh, earlier today,、uh, but I have to say that、uh, it's saddening to see two mass shootings done by fathers in just. Within the past few days in America, and I also saw a. I only saw a、uh, only a dog that okay for him. Nothing wrong with that. I'll tell you that having kids is tons of a responsibility.、Uh, sometimes I feel it's too much. I had a.、Uh, I have a friend, a couple in、uh, Rhode Island area, and、uh, they ne- they tried. They never had kids. I I keep telling him. Don't feel too bad, because first of all, you have so many、uh, nephews and nieces to start with. Because he had a big family. Second is that having kids is、uh, tons of responsibility, and、uh, it's just sometimes, you know, too much. And、uh, but anyway, I have、uh, come across this.、Uh, I follow this、uh, couple. The wife is、uh, from Russia slash Ukraine, because、uh, her father. Is Ukrainian. Her mother is Russian, and she married a Chinese guy. And they are very. The couple is very popular in China. So I post their this YouTube link. They posted. They send a package to her father in Ukraine, because for some reason, the the、uh, the shipment the post the post the post service between postal service between China and Ukraine 
was stopped because of the because of the war, and was restored until recent uh, uh, recently. So they was they were able to send a package of uh, goods to her to her father, and uh, of course of course because of the war, her father really has not nothing much to cherish about. <laughs> And uh, the father was uh, extremely pleased with a pair of pillow sent by his daughter, and uh, so the daughter and her husband in China had this uh, comment saying, "You know, because of the war, a pair of uh, otherwise ordinary pillows can make a father acting like a child." Uh, literally, this uh, Ukrainian guy who is probably in his sixties was jumping up and down about the all the goods he received from his daughter in China. So, so it's a bittersweet uh, clip. Uh, I shed some tears. I'll be, I'll be I have to be honest because uh, the daughter is crying, seeing her father being so overjoyed by a pair of pillow sent by her. And of course, I send out two links uh, of the United States. A news from the United States, where two fathers, one in Ohio, uh, the other one in Tennessee. I think the, in Tennessee, the the guy is a grandfather, and the, the the father in in Ohio is a father. The Ohio father killed three of his sons, and the Tennessee grandfather. Let me see here. Killed a uh, boy. Two of the couple's grandchildren and another child. So, in both mass shooting incidents, a guy, a father or a grandfather, killed three children. What kind of a human being can pull triggers on his own children and grandchildren? Something is just profoundly wrong. I, I had an episode in the at the start of this year because in the first week of this year, 2023, uh, there's two shootings. One in Utah, a father killed five of his own children. In the same week, a North Carolina father sh- shot dead either two or three of his children. That is America. So yeah, Happy Father's Day. And uh, let's not to let's find out why these people kill their own children. I think that will be a good start. And uh, so that I do want to bring it out because in Ukraine, you know, after all, Ukraine war is also a mass shooting too, and uh, we caused a lot of miseries to not just the fathers and the all the mothers and family members over there. So that I want to bring it up. So today I'm a little bit excited for today's episode. The reason is this: since the beginning of this Sunday series, people have asked me, "How do you define white in this judicial white privilege show?" I'm not going to say I struggled about it, but I because I was somewhat prepared. I have、uh, told everyone that I came across this map. Called the moral and the political chart of the inhabited world. It is a American-made geopolitical chart, and it shows the entire world is separated by civilized people, half-civilized, 
savages and the barbarians, I think, I believe. So I would say that's an interesting thing. So because I think a lot of those uh, white privilege came from the uh, moral lessons or the political lessons from this chart. So when people ask me, you know, how do you define white? I would say, well, that I will consider anyone whose ancestor is from those, quote, civilized, unquote, regions on that map. Now, to me, I thought that was adequate enough, but I still got people asking me that question. How do you define white? And so until recently, I have le uh, uh, listened to this uh, YouTube video made by Professor Jerome, uh, Gerald Horn, H-O-R-N-E, uh, which I should, I think, uh, paste the uh, the link in the chat room lay later when I'm playing it. And he had a, a very good, uh, he wrote a book. Uh, I think the name of the book is called... Uh, Colonialism, religion, class, race. And uh, in that particular YouTube video clip, he had a great explanation how to define white. And he said it the best. So I'm not going to try to repeat what he said. I'm just going to play what he said and uh, on that clip for you guys. All right. So, of course, I still welcome and encourage anyone to challenge me after I after today's episode. But I do want everyone, next time, if you want to ask me how to define white, I'm going to just use this episode to answer that question. So I'm going to start with the introduction. The introduction is called trust or distrust the process. I'm going to use what Justice Kavanaugh uh, Brett Kavanaugh now sits in the, on the U.S. Supreme Court. She had, a, I'm sorry, he had a, a pretty uh, contentious confirmation process. And uh, now, I always do this. When I see merits, I will point it out, regardless of that person. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh was accused of some serious sexual misconduct. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to say I'm impressed with the one things he said during his confirmation process. That that topic is so-called the process. So I'm going to read some of his uh, testimonies about something called the process, especially when it comes to making judicial decisions. Okay. Uh So this is what he said, Judge Kavanaugh, in his uh, Senate confirmation hearing. Quote, as judges, you do not just issue policies or issue opinions out of the blue. You decide, as Article 3 says, cases and controversies, and that means there is a process. And he went on to say something else. And then he said, quote, I like to say there is a process. I like to say process protects you. That is one of the things I always like to keep in mind. You'll go through a process to help make the decisions, a deliberative process. And we have a process. 
judges are, judges are very focused on process and having that oral argument, having the briefing, and then talking to your colleagues, you change your mind. Senator, you have been a judge, of course. You change your mind sometimes based on the comments of your colleagues. So that process is important. So he said this in one section. And then in another occasion, again, still in the same confirmation process, Judge Kavanaugh said this. I think there are a lot of similarities to the Supreme Court in terms of the process from my time clerking for Justice Kennedy, at least. My experience there and the seeing how it works now. So the collective decision-making process combined with the discipline of preparing and discipline of oral argument, the discipline of writing it out. That is why judges, when they come here, are very reluctant when they get a hypothetical or just to get a one-off answer without going through that process. Process protects us as judges. It protects the people who are affected by our decision. So we are, we love processes. We, because we are used to process, the process and process in our view helps us make better and more informed decisions. When I, I listened to his uh, confirmation process because of the accusation I was interested to hear, and uh, I listened pretty carefully. I, back then, I was quite impressed. This is back in 2018. I still remember today. That's why I. it's easy for me to just go back to the Senate hearing document and then just uh, copy out what he said. Scientifically speaking, a sound process is made of a series of sequential steps in an orderly fashion for you to arrive to a decision. It applies to judges. It applies to you for your work. It applies to my work. In my work, I do have a process of my own to make sure my work is solid with quality. So I'm not redoing the work I do. I usually know what... If something went wrong, I can find out from the process I have where things went wrong and make a quick correction. So in the, in the process, you have to have a sequential order. So that's, I call it horses and carts. A horse must be in front of the cart to get it going. If you place the cart in front of the horse, you have not, you're going nowhere. You know, if you don't follow that order, when you, when you, when you, when you, when you do something according to a process, then you will have a disorderly process. That is what our law is supposed to work in everything's happening. Okay, so so that's my take from what Kavanaugh said. So to continue with that, this is a rough flowchart of what the process is, as Justice Kavanaugh calls it, in the in legal proceedings. First, is there a cases or controversy 
meaning there is some people have some serious agreement. Someone's injured. There's a controversy. There's a dispute. If there's no disputes, we don't have to do anything. So that's the first order of business, right? And then the next step is what laws are violated by the violated by the by the accused. Okay, if there's a no law, there's no statute that will violate. Then is there a common law, meaning laws are not written in the book, but was violated by the accused? Okay, just a, as example, in the Dobbs decision, Justice Alito basically saying having abortion is a common law crime back in the old England. Therefore, we still may consider whether abortion is a crime or not. And he said it's not for the federal Supreme Court to decide that. He wants to send it back to the state. Okay, so this is where this is the second order of business. What exactly is the law that the accused has violated? Okay, so and then third one. Now this is just a dra raw draft. Again, I'm trying to say this is the process, an orderly process when you look at a legal issue. Okay, so next one. What law for real are being violated violated by the accused? Okay, so I'm going to use Rosa Parks as an example late, later. So in other words, sometimes the government may accuse you of violating a law. For example, lying to the FBI. But the government will skip the part that what is the real law that you are violating? If you're lying to an FBI, of course, it's an obstruction of justice. But you are lying to cover up a crime. What is that real crime? That's what I mean. What is the law for real that is actually being violated by the accused? So, you know, this will be the third item to be looked at. And the fourth one, again, this is just a raw draft. That I might be missing something. The fourth one, are the laws we're talking about in compliance with the Constitution? You know, there are, there are cases, someone is growing marijuana in his backyard, and he got caught. You know, he, he this is a guy in California, he challenged the marijuana law, saying growing marijuana should not be a crime, because any anti-marijuana laws are not in compliance with the Constitution. So that's the first item on the orderly process of a, of a legal proceeding. And the fifth one. Thus, the court has jurisdiction under the rele relevant laws. Because there's many laws. Some courts have jurisdiction under some laws, but not all the laws. Right? I think I made a, a episode about this. Uh, it's called the long arm of the uh, judicial white privilege. This is about the, 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 uh, the arrest uh, of a uh, the CFO of Huawei, because the by the Canadian government, because the U.S. court issued an arrest warrant for something that a, a, a somehow Huawei violated this uh, Iran-related sanction law, which is a very very long arm of jurisdiction. 
And actually, that's the argument by the by this uh, by the lawyers of the CFO of Huawei saying the U.S. court does not have jurisdiction over the CFO of Huawei because that Iran section sanction law is related to a bank in Hong Kong. It has nothing to do with Huawei. So, so, so that's the fifth item. That's the court has jurisdiction under the relevant laws. And the sixth item, were any judicial decisions made by the court during the proceeding in compliance with the separation of powers principle? Because sometimes, especially when the court render a judgment against the executive branch, they want to be careful because the Constitution has said there's a separation of powers. You cannot step into the jurisdiction of the executive branch. And the last one, the one I have here, I might, I must be missing something too. Or just you know, just you know, because I'm not a lawyer, I just know that all these are an orderly item of questions you have to ask. And I'm going to use actual examples. One is Rosa Parks' example. One is Donald Trump as an example to follow the, this process. Okay? Does the court to ha have the power to render any remedies? when there is a case and controversy. If the court has no power to render any remedies, then the court say, there's no case here because we cannot do anything. So that is, in a nutshell, is that process, as commoner calls it. Okay? Also, along the way, during the process, during these proceedings, you have to assure the integrity of the proceedings. Right? You ask whether there's a judicial impartiality or not. You don't want to have a judge who are, who are, who are biased against a party. We have a lot of problems about that, right? You know, with the U.S. Supreme Court ethics violation shit, people are questioning the judicial impartiality of the highest court. That's the integrity of the proceeding. You have a jury integrity. You don't want your jury to be tampered with. And you also have uh, this prosecutorial integrity. Uh, in fact, I'm going to talk about Daniel Ellsberg also. We know in the Daniel Ellsberg espionage case, by the way, it's identical to the Trump's offenses under Jack Smith, by Jack Smith. Okay? There's a prosecutorial misconduct, right? When it comes to Daniel Ellsberg's criminal case. Because it was found that the, the, the government is spying on Ellsberg through his uh, psychiatrist. They even break into Daniel Ellsberg's apartment. Something like that. So that's the integrity of the entire proceeding along the process. In addition, what I have laid it out. Again, what I'm saying here is it is not all-inclusive. I must be missing something. But you got an idea. It's a sequence of questions with a proper priority. You have to answer those questions. So that's why I said it's a question of horses and carts. To be orderly, you have to always put the horses horse before the cart. Otherwise, the process is not going to go anywhere. 
So here I'm going to go to the next section is the horses and carts in the process. Now I'm going to compare Rosa Parks to Donald Trump. Because you know, people say, well, why are you so nice to, to Donald Trump? Well, I'll tell you, I'm willing to defend Donald Trump legally. But I hate him so much, I also want to, at the same time, to defeat him politically. Through voting. Now, I have said, I, I plan to move to Pennsylvania for the year 2024 if I see that Pennsylvania may go to Trump. Because I do believe Pennsylvania is a battleground state. If Trump wins Pennsylvania, he will win. In 2024. But I have to defend him legally. I'm going to apply the process that I just talked about. So, to get, to get started with, I will use Rosa Parks as an example. What's the horse? What's the cart? The cart is that the police accuse Rosa Parks disorderly conduct, right? Not following the instruction of the bus driver. So, what's the horse? The horse is the law. The law is called the Montgomery City Code. Okay, I actually did this in the past. It's worth repeating. Section 11 of the Montgomery City Code. I'm going to read it. Powers of persons in charge of a vehicle. That's a bus. Passengers to obey directions. Section 11. Any employee in charge of a bus operated in the city shall have the powers of a police officer of the city while in actual charge of any bus for the purpose of carrying out the provision of the preceding section. By the way, the preceding section is about separation by race on the bus. And it shall be unlawful for any passengers to refuse to or to refuse or fail to take a seat among those assigned to the race to which he belongs at the request of any such employee in charge, comma, if there is such a seat vacant. The provision in this law, section 11, the key is the last sentence, if there is such a seat vacant. So you go through this process, evaluating do we really have a controversy when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Then you're going to read this law. Like in my past episode, I said, a judge, his job, number one, follow the process, as Justice Kavanaugh said. You have to read the language in that law. If there's such a seat vacant, is the condition when Section 11 became becomes enforceable. Right? So we all know what happened. At the time of Rosa Parks' ride on that bus, it's the rush hour. Everybody is a get-off work. So the bus was full. So as a judge, you will ask the question, if you follow the process, the controversy is that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat uh, to follow the directions. 
So what the law violated? Disorderly conduct in front of a police officer. What is the real law being violated? Section 11. But what exactly the section 11 says? It says, you have, you, a passenger must follow the direction of the bus driver if there is such a seat vacant. So we know the two judges, at least two judges in Montgomery, Alabama did not follow the process the judges, Justice Commodore said. Right? They just pretend they did not see that. In my past episode, I did this already. I'm not even asking the judge, saying, let's look at whether this law is in compliance with the Constitution or not. I'm just saying, the law as it is written at the time, as it is being enforced at the time, has clearly said, if there is such a seat vacant, So the judges there did not follow the process. So that's just an example how important that process is. You have to put the horse in front of the cart. The horse is section 11. And the horse is actually has a provision. The horse said, if it's too hot, I don't have to pull the cart. That's called a hot weather provision. In Rosa Parks' case, it's called the vacancy provision. Right? So now I'm going to use Trump as an example because I love this uh, Jack Smith case against Trump. I think it's a perfect case. Horses and carts for Trump, number one. The espionage offenses. If espionage act can be abused to go after Trump, it must have been abused to go after other ordinary citizens, right? I have said before, a lot of Chinese are accused of uh, espionage offenses. We know Daniel Ellsberg, who recently passed. And as a matter of fact, there is a YouTube clip, uh, a YouTube clip on the Democracy Now! channel. That it shows a white liberal stopped criticizing the Espionage Act simply because now Trump is being prosecuted under the same law. Prior to that, all the liberals, all the white liberals, they hate the Espionage Act. The CNN actually did a clip. Uh, it, it says. Uh, let me see. I need to open up this. Trump is not a spy. Why is he charged under the Espionage Act? This is analysis by Zachary B. Wolf. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to go over everything, but this is a title of that CNN article. Trump is not a spy, period. Why is he charged under the Espionage Act? You can ask yourself about that. So let me read the law again, just what I read about the Montgomery City Code, about bus segregation. 
This is what CNN posted on his web well, on its website. Here's what that law says. The specific language in 18 U.S.C. 973E, which is cited in the indictment against Trump, goes like this. Whoever having unauthorized possession, I want to emphasize the word unauthorized, okay, guys? Whoever having unauthorized possession of, access to, or control over any document, writing, code book, signal book, sketch, photography, photographic negative, blueprint, plan, map, model, instrument, appliance, or note relating to the national defense, or information relating to the national defense, which information the processors has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, willfully communicates, delivers, transmit, or cause to be trans communicated, delivered, or transmitted, or attempt to communicate, deliver, transmit, or cause to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted the same to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fail to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. Still, this is CNN saying. That's the whole point here. This is what CNN saying, not my words. The National Archives and the FBI tried repeatedly over time to get the material back. But the government has accused Trump of hiding from the government and his own lawyers. I want to tell you guys, first of all, is that as uh, Daniel Ellsberg is accused exactly under the same statute, including the conspiracy. Including the conspiracy, because the Fed at that time knows Ellsberg does not have access to the Pentagon paper anymore. He actually have to have someone else to help him to copy the Pentagon paper out. Daniel Ellsberg at the time has no authority to access Pentagon papers. He is aware of the existence of the Pentagon paper. So now let's look at this law now. Okay, just like what I did for Rosa Parks. Let's look for Trump. The first one, two, three, four, four words is this. Whoever having unauthorized possession of access control. So Trump is the president of the United States. Is he having unauthorized possession? When he was the president? A judge have to look at this. Daniel Ellsberg? No, he does not have authorized access to that Pentagon document. He's no longer with the Rand Corporation, I believe. He has a friend still working there. So he asks his friend to copy it out. The facts actually find out through the Xerox machine's model, who copied it. So the horse, the question of horse is that whether the president has an unauthorized possession when the president is in the office. The answer is, of course, yes. Then let me ask you this. 
Can you unseen a dick pic after you have seen it? Someone sends you a dick pic and you saw it. Can you unseen it? So, 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 so let me ask you another question will be how can the president unpossess his prior on uh, his prior authorized possession? Or access of the document. How can he unaccess the accessed information, the documents? How he can uncontrol over the controlled document under his presidency when he 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 he's no longer the president? He already seen the dick. Pick. Is that right? You just read it from the from the plain language of the text. Can I say that same thing for Daniel Ellsberg? No. Can I say the same thing for Hillary Clinton? No, because she is not a president. She's not the supreme commander of the entire national defense. A president can ha- have authorized a possession of any writing, any code book, signal book, sketch, photography, any shit listed on that statue. While he was the president, he's authorized. The question is, can you somehow unauthorize a prior authorized possession? Ask yourself that question. After you decide that, you can ask yourself, National Archives, in which part of the espionage law that bring in the National Archive, which is a federal agency, into the picture? The Espionage Act has nothing to do with the National Archives. Zero. Is that right? Yes, I'm not saying Trump is a nice person. No, he is obnoxious, douchebag. Anything you want to say about him. But I'm just asking you a question. As a president, any president, the supreme commander of all the national defense, how can you unauthorize a prior authorized possession? You can't. You cannot unseen a dick pic after you have the authorization authorization to see it. You know, this is why I said, no, you. I'm just a common man explaining to you guys in common language what the fuck these feds are doing. It's a complete waste of time. Like I said, from the last year in August, after uh, Trump was searched in Malago, I said. Mary Garland handed a gold plate in a gold plate, the comeback uh, comeback opportunity for Donald Trump. He literally can be this because, as Justice Carmen said, there's a process a ju- all judges should follow. We you know we know the prosecutors they are politicians too, right? They know that, and, and, and you know it's it's a plain and simple. 
the Supreme Court have to go through the same process from from the start. Which law and the which Trump is being charged? Right? So, like I said, Mike Pence, he's not the president. Joe Biden, when he was the vice president, he's not the president. He's not the supreme commander. He serves at the pleasure of the supreme commander, my friend. Everything they did is unauthorized. I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, um, not just all that, but there is no formal procedure for declassifying documents. So it could absolutely be argued that just by his action of taking the documents, he declassified them. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. Heidi, welcome back. Cause I miss you. Cause I, I haven't Thank seen you. you I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Let, let me make you the speaker. You know, you're right. I'm not talking nonsense here. It, and, uh, I have said back in August of last year, I said, what the fuck is Mary Garland thinking? If I were him, I would say January 6th is your best bet. Go after Trump, plain and simple. No, even January, even January 6th is a non-starter. Yeah, he I mean, that's the thing. Worse. Yeah, he actually using this uh, espionage thing. He made the January 6th like a chicken shit now. Well, the words, whole thing, actually, the whole thing with the way they keep going after him with these non-starter uh, kinds of cases yeah, is it, actually making it into the witch hunt that he first claimed it to be. Exactly. It is. It's a witch hunt. It's, it is. So, again, yes. I'm not a Trump, Trump fan. I'll tell you that. But like I said, I would defend him legally. Like, I yeah. hate the Espionage Act. Not because I'm a liberal. I'm not. Not because I'm a conservative. No. I'm just saying laws are made to abuse people, to give government more power. Absolutely. I like the, I like the fact now the Espionage Act is used to going after a former president, the most fucking powerful man ever. Not just that, but I was watching Glenn Greenwald's coverage on Daniel Ellsberg. He had a tribute episode for him, mm -hmm. and he made a point that during Daniel Ellsberg's trial, the judge made a ruling that he could not put up a defense. And that precedent is seriously, uh, for one thing, totally unconstitutional, and it fucks every whistleblower over. Yes. So they, they are not allowed. Mm -hmm. Yep. They are not allowed to put on an affirmative defense. Yep, exactly. That is horseshit. We yes. should find out that judge's name and that motherfucker should go down in infamy and shame. Yeah. This is my show is about. I want to put these judges in, in some bad shit. I just called it judicial white privilege. Guess what? I'm not white. So I'm, I'm calling it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it would be better if you called it rich white judicial okay. privilege. Okay. <laughs> By the way, Heidi, I'm right now in the Appalachian area, which is a lot of poor white folks. I have not seen yeah. a single black person, but each white person I came across, I, I can tell they, they are, they are low income people. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And um, I think it was, I, I know both MLK and Mar Malcolm X. I think it may have been the Appalachian area after they visited. They understood. White people do not have privilege. It's not the skin color. It absolutely has to do with your lineage and your wealth. Exactly. The, the privilege, you know, where the, you know, the privilege, yep. like I always said, the yep. word is not a bad word. It's not the, 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 the meaningful word is the privilege part I have problem with. Like yep. they can get absolutely. away from shit. 
right? Right, right. And and the argument is that a white person can fake it. Like I can go out and buy a nice $1,000 suit and go in and apply for a job. And yeah, I can fake it that I have the manners and the, you know, connections or whatever of a of a rich person. I, I get found out most likely, you know, uh, they, they have ways of finding imposters. But um, that's the only argument that they really have when they say it's all white. But oh. it definitely is not all white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to- totally. Yeah. So before I last time I already did this. It's a very similar issue. The, the the Supreme Court have decided. It's a Van Buren versus United States, where the cop was convicted by the feds of a uh, hacking a computer. What computer system? The law enforcement computer system that he has <laughs> authorization to access. So he got convicted. So he appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the cop, saying this cop has authorization to access that computer system. What he did is a crime, but it's not about the hacking the computer. He already has the access. He need not to hack into it. The problem right. he has is that he used the information he gained from it and sold it for six hundred dollars. Basically, a friend of him want to check out uh, uh, whether a hooker, a prostitute, is an informant for the law enforcement or not. So this guy, this cop, Van Buren, abused his position and uh, provided the information and got $6,000, which is a crime. But the feds also charged him for computer hacking. So the Supreme Court said, no, no, he has authorization to access that computer. Right, it's the sale, the it, transaction exactly. that should be illegal. Right? Exactly. This is why, remember, I have said from the beginning, this is so-called the process that Justice Kavanaugh has brought about. There is a process, it's an orderly order of business, which when you decide first, you have to always put the horse in front of the cart. So that yeah. I would, for the benefit of those who joined l- later, my drafty flow chart of this process, as Justice Kavanaugh calls it, is called first, do you have a case and a controversy? If there's no disputes, there's no case. The next one, which law are being violated by the accused? Okay, and the third one, which law for real is being violated by the accused? And the third, is the law being violated in compliance with the Constitution? If it is not, then this law is, should not be on the book. So the accused should be free to go. Right. Well, I saw... One, and let, let me finish. So the third one, okay. thus the court has jurisdiction under this law we're going to judge. Sometimes the court does not have a jurisdiction. Third, uh, sorry, not third, next one, will any judicial decisions comply with the separation of powers? Imagine the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, the president, the supreme commander, the commander-in-chief has no, uh, we are going to make a decision as a court that the the commander-in-chief has no power, no authorization to possess these materials. That's a violation of separation of power, in my opinion, because uh, the executive branch is in charge of all the national defense operation. And the president is the commander in chief. 
He's the highest. Absolutely. He's the number one sayer, not even the court. You don't need to go to court saying this classified document need to be declassified. No, it's the president's decision. I'm sorry. That's how the law wrote, wrote up. And, yeah. and so, it, like so, you said, that it's the process. That's it's the, the order. You, that's the order. That's the proper order. You need to step, evaluate step by step. Right? You know, just like when you decide whether you should go to get a new refrigerator or not. You have a, a <laughs> step, right? It's, it's funny way. that you say that because I I just had a thing yesterday where I was going to buy a buy a new refrigerator. Uh-huh. I was talking to the people on calling about it. <laughs> so so calling this is the uh, sorry the horse and cart this is number one horse and cart. Okay, the second one horses and cart question for Trump is this: Is the evidence admissible when the lawyers are the provider of these evidence? And it is provided against their own client. Is that a violation of a attorney-client privilege? Now, as we know already, there's a difference when you are not a U.S. Supreme Court justice. You don't place a lot of focus on the process of Justice Kavanaugh said. Okay? Well, the other part of that is if the, if the uh, attorney is a party to a crime, then they can be compelled to testify. Yeah, so I'm going to give you an example. Okay, this is also is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Because remember, the star witnesses of this espionage shit is all provided by this guy, I think it's Alvin Cochran, is, is his name. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay? I will tell you this. Daniel Ellsberg. Rest in peace. Hell yeah. And uh, uh, if you go to the New York Times obituary today about Daniel Ellsberg's death. Here is a paragraph from that thing. Okay, funny part is this. New York Times does not bring up this, what I'm going to tell you. Okay, but I'm going to say what they said for in regard to death of Daniel Ellsberg. Attorney General John Mitchell citing espionage and conspiracy statutes warned the Times, the New York Times, that he had jeopardized national security and said the newspaper faced ruinous legal action. Editors, lawyers, and the Times publisher, Arthur Salzberger, conferred and the publication resumed. This means that there's already two rounds of publication of Pentagon paper out. And the Attorney General say, you are in violation of the Espionage Act and conspiracy statutes. Remember, that's the exact same thing that Trump is in being charged. Okay? After the third installment, because they already published twice, two rounds. After the third in installment, however, the Justice Department obtained an injunction halting publication. Now, this is from what New York Times said in regard to the death of the Daniel Ellsberg. If you go to Wikipedia page about this lawyer called James Goodell, G-O-O-D-A-L-E, I'm going to read the same, what actually happened then. After the New York Times outside counsel, Lord Day and Lord, that's the name of the, of the lawyer, uh, law firm, advised the New York Times against publishing classified information and quit 
when the U.S. Justice Department threatened to sue the paper to stop publication, Goodell led his own legal team and directed the strategy that resulted in winning the Supreme Court case of New York Times versus United States. So remember this: the New York Times' own legal counsel, Lord Day and Lord, just like. Evan Cochran, who is the counsel for Donald Trump, resigned. The only difference is this: Lord and Taylor did not report to the Justice Department that New York Times has committed espionage offenses and the conspiracy offenses. Are we going back in time? Are we getting worse and worse in this country? Yeah, Lawyers we are being the snitch of their own client after getting paid. And it's what? Trump, it's Trump arrangement syndrome. What the? Yeah, fuck? it's true. I'll tell you. It, I mean, I love this, Heidi. As you know, I have always said the fucking justice system is a total political tool, right?、Yeah. I just love it. These are the white on white travesty. I love this shit. It's losing credibility because of this. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I just love it when the whites going after whites like so viciously. <laughs> okay, love it.、Yeah. Hey, You've been doing this to the to to the to the to the racial minorities using the same tactics against the Chinese scientists,、uh, saying they are the spy for the China for China, and those shit. Now you're doing doing Trump. Excellent. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Burn it down. Burn it、and、down. We need、baby. to re. We it's it's beyond reform. We, you know, it's too corrupted. Anyway, we're gonna、exactly. have to rebuild it anyway. Total yeah, I agree. Total abolishment.、Yep. Uh, Villa, I'll But, take you、uh, after I finish this, okay? Because I'm going to. I right now I'm defending Trump. I've always been very fair,、uh, fair-minded. Okay,、uh, go ahead, Heidi. Oh, I just wanted to throw in.、Uh, I saw Kim Iverson's coverage of this, and there was a lawyer. I guess tangentially related. I'm not sure how, but he pointed out that the one thing that Trump is guilty of and probably would be convicted of is hiding the documents. Like he didn't comply with the subpoena, so that's going to be a problem. What I said is this earlier: the horse and cart, all the shit, all the narrative. Of course, as you know, mainstream media and the government they how they always know how to play the. Narratives to confuse you, so you don't know which one is the horse, which one is the cart. So Heidi just brought up a great question. I'm going to answer her and clarify one more time. When the government is prosecuting Rosa Parks, they will intentionally not let you know in the law itself that Rosa Parks refused to obey. There is a vacant seat provision. It's written in the law. The judges knew it. The prosecutor knew it. But what did they do? They say Rosa Parks, you're guilty of not obeying a police order. But that's the cart. That's not the horse. The horse is saying, if there's no vacant seat, this section eleven is not enforceable. Exactly, it's almost like entrapment. 
when they just you totally say, ignore how, yeah. a, a huge part of the law like that. Exactly. So then what Heidi just brought is this. The prosecutor, the government and mainstream media say, look at him. He just laid these documents in the bathroom. How dare him doing that? I don't give a fuck. I'm just asking you this. If you've seen a dick pic, you've seen it already. And you made a copy of it. And for some reason, you place it in your daughter's bedroom's drawer. I'm just saying you put it there. So is that a crime? Because you are authorized to have that dick pic to start with. Remember, that's the horse. Don't talk about the cart until we finish the horse. Right? So, again, horse number two here is that can you use a lawyer's testimony of his client against that client? That is, you go ahead. Because if you no, don't... I'm if disagreeing. That, it shouldn't be. Uh, yeah. Because uh, yeah. uh, that's the same thing, like I said, when it comes to abortion. Like, I'm not saying I'm for killing babies. I'm just saying, how can you know what's going on in a woman's ovary? When it's protected as a master of her own domain, a castle of her own jurisdiction, behind the white picket fences, behind and the she's supposed to have confidentiality with the medical professionals. Everything, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's the horse. I want you to answer that horse yeah. before we go to the yeah. cart, right? Yeah. So I think I'm being reasonable here, and not. I think so too. Yeah, I'm not, you know, so I think the Supreme Court will eventually decide these two horses about Trump. I hope so. I, I actually, you know, I you were saying earlier that you wanted to see him beat politically. Uh, I used to feel that way, too. You know, like I, he's kind of a repugnant person and I don't like him. He's kind of embarrassing. But the more the establishment wants to stamp his chance out, I want to vote for him now. Because I, I hate I, the establishment. I, I, I'll tell you why. I said Trump literally can beat the Espionage Act of uh, charge and the return yeah. as a national hero. Okay? I have said it back mm -hmm. in uh, August of last year. Yeah. All thanks to the stupid judicial white privileges by the name of a Mary Garland. I'm very happy yeah. he's not the Supreme Court justice. Yeah, like you said... Or, or like you've been making very clear with all of your episodes, the whole system is losing credibility. It's losing its legitimacy. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that happen, too. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a political tool used by, by, by the partisans, you know? And so, the status quo. Yeah. Yep. So that, no, now, before I take flat, this is, I will try to share with you guys. The rest of this episode today is about defining white in the judicial white privilege. We, again, I, Jonathan has challenged me in the past. I think Nevada is another person. Hey, Peter, define white in white privilege, you know? And I felt that is also a horse and cart importance, right? I need to define it better. So, uh, so, so, so I'm going to go into that because uh, I want to let this uh, horse and cart concept, the process, the concept of a proper process of dealing with these legal issues first. You know, and then I'm going to, you know, go through how to define white. I actually, I'll start with that, tell you this. It has 
less with a skin color. It's a lot more with the politics. So with that, I'm going to hear what Vela has to say. Go ahead, Vela. I hope everyone's having a great father's for those of for those of you that have fathers, I hope you guys are having a great Father's Day. Uh, I unfortunately, my father died at six when I was six years old, so I don't get to celebrate it. Celebrate it with my grandfather. It's a different story, but he's been long gone. Uh, so I'm sad. I don't have any fathers. I don't celebrate it. Just mothers for now. But anyway, uh, I hope everybody's doing good. And uh, yeah, it's it's sad to see the white implosion in America. The white implosion from inside. White on white crime. Left white hates right white. Instead of working together and moving the country ahead, they're divided, not only ideologically and in many, many other areas of, uh, of, of uh, their belief system and the things they believe in. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, going back to ideology and stuff. But it's, it's, it's horrible. And yes, we're a horrible example to the world. And not because I'm white, no. But I've been accused of being white. I've been called a white supremacist. They say I suffer from white privilege. I don't know where the hell they get that. <laughs> I never lived in a lily white neighborhood. You know that, uh, uh, Peter. I've confessed that. I, I live in the hood, for crying out loud. I, I don't know where they get the willy like uh, fences and nice picket fences, you know, uh, of middle class America. Never lived in them. You know, I, I don't wish them anymore. I don't care for them. But I've never lived in them. So. But it's horrible. But it's beautiful, too. You know why? Because this, like, and I'll agree with Heidi, even though we were different in many ways, you know, this is agree to disagree. And this one will be to agree, actually, is it needs to happen in order for white America to be humble and come back down to earth. Because I know there's white people that can't stand other white people. They're either too arrogant or their money has gone too much to their head, their way of life, and, and, and they got tired of seeing. And I had a friend who was married to a white woman like that. Uh, she was of German heritage. Uh, my friend Angel, she was married to my good friend who died last year, David, David Galindo. He unfortunately died from bad uh, diabetes and uh, kid failure and all that. But I remember Angel used to tell me, her, whose real name was Carlene. Angel used to tell me in, when we had these talks that why she hated white America. And I go, well, well isn't that kind of like against yourself? And no, I didn't see it exactly what she said until I started noticing in other people. There is white people that literally hate other white people. And I go, but how could that be? It's because of his belief system, ideology, religion, everything, political affiliation, everything. They just don't agree with them. And they marry into other other cultures because of that. I've seen a lot of white people marry into Mexicans. Not because we're, we have white Mexicans in general, just across the board. Uh, variations uh, of, of Mexican. And Mexicans are like, well, whatever. Whoever wants to come in, they could join, right? We're, we're very open people. We're not ethnocentric or anything like that. It's almost impossible to be ethnocentric as Mexican. But it, I've seen it for the longest throughout my life. And I always wonder, why is it that some white people, and, and they used to tell me, I agree more with Hispanics the way you see life than I see with my own kind. And I'm like, wow. Actually, Vlad, what you have just said, actually, uh, is paid a perfect introduction to what I'm about to play. Okay? So hold your thought and hear what I'm going to play. This is going to be, again, I have finished the horse and the carts concept. Okay, and I use the Rosa Parks as an example and Donald Trump as an example. And I think just guys remember, you know, things when it comes to 
maintaining justice, it has to be done in an orderly fashion, through an orderly pr- process. And it, right now, we're very out of whack in, in, in the Trump situation. And, uh, you know, it's good for my show. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about it. I have said, uh, I agree with Heidi is that I truly believe the thanks to Mary Garland. Remember, Mary Garland admitted himself that he is the one who approved the application of a search warrant of a Mar-a-Lago for this one. And on that search warrant, he has the espionage offenses. But then I was already said, Mary Garland has to pull his dick out and is ready to do its thing. And he has no way to pull it back. And sure enough, Jack Smith filed the indictment. Because I know this, when you are being searched for espionage offenses, you are almost 100% guaranteed to be indicted. And Trump has this with the Mary U.S. Darling, for the record, Mary uh-huh. Darling, by the way he looks, he has to have a small dick. Not that I care, you know, yeah, just you know, for the rules of pride. Know, but, you know, but, but whatever it is, but I, I have already called Mary Garland a judicial white privileges. Okay, I already did that way back, way back. So now I'm going to go to the. Defining white in white privilege and a lot had to do with the Hispanics too. And uh, I have been listening to this uh, professor, Gerald Horn, and I found out, I already said he's brilliant. Okay. And I found out he solved my problem and I can, now I can answer that question. Uh, I have said before, when people ask me, how do you define white in judicial white privilege? I've said, look at that map called the moral and the political chart. Of the inhabited world, as that anyone whose ancestor is from those civilized regions, I'm going to put the quotes on the civilized regions. I consider them white, and that how that how my, But now, Professor Gerald Horn, I think, has a more uh, in-depth explanation of that. It actually goes back to that moral and the political chart but uh, i'm going to let him talk because uh, i will play about 20 minutes of his talking the first part is about the religious religiosity and the synthetic whiteness okay i'm just going. this is my own title about this segment it's about 20 minutes and then there's about three minutes he's talking about the elasticity of whiteness it's a fascinating stuff Vlad, I think you it has a lot to do with with the, what you have said. Okay, again, he said uh, I'm going to invite you to be the speaker, so I'm going to play that. Power on. Yeah, thank you for to connected. The euphemistically distorting the lives of those who arrived on these shores. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I, it was a. Uh... It's such a great um, way to describe kind of this invasion, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have been taught in Western kind of history that uh, these people were coming to a new world, when in fact they were coming to a world that was populated and robust and had um, civilizations on it. And it marks the end of 
kind of their civilization, the beginning of this new uh, project, as it were, in colonialism. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how that project comes to be, and you know how how Europeans start moving across the globe in this mm. uh, in this way of and you know ushering in this apocalypse as wherever they go. Mm -hmm. Well, as I tell the story, 1492 is the hinge moment. Uh, you may recall that those we refer to as the Spanish had the first movers advantage. By 1565, they had invaded what they called Florida, and a few decades later uh, had invaded what they called New Mexico, both contemporary states of the United States of America. And one of the things I'm trying to do is shift the narrative with regard to European settlement away from what we call Virginia and Massachusetts and more so to the states now known as Florida and New Mexico. But in order to understand why the Spanish moved westward across the Atlantic, you have to understand some of the history leading up uh, to that hinge moment. In the book, I go back as far as the end of the 11th century and the Crusades. But for our purposes here, I'll begin in 1453 with Muslim forces, as they were then described, uh, taking over what was then known as Constantinople. And the Muslims were fairly thought to be on the march. Uh, you re might recall that in the 8th century, uh, they had barely been defeated with regard to uh, taking over France, uh, for example. However, 1492 marks a moment when you have a sharp contestation between the rulers of Spain, who are mostly Spanish, excuse me, who are mostly Catholic, and the uh, Muslim forces who had been ruling the Iberian Peninsula uh, for hundreds of years, up until 1492. However, despite the defeat of the so-called Muslim forces on the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, of France, excuse me, Spain could hardly rest on its laurels uh, because it was thought that the Muslims were on the march. And certainly the idea of the Western Europeans, the Spanish moving across the Atlantic, in part it was a response to the so-called Muslim forces continuing moving westward <laughs> towards uh, Spain, towards the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, 1492 also marks the time when you have a persecution, a deepening persecution of the Jewish population of the Iberian Peninsula. In fact, there is speculation that when Columbus, Christopher Columbus, the man we would refer to today as Italian, uh, sponsored by those who we would refer to today as the Spanish, uh, sails across the Atlantic that there may have been uh, Jewish migrants, quote unquote, uh, on ships alongside him. In any case, uh, Spain has the first movers advantage along with its neighbors, speaking of the uh, Portuguese. 
and they uh, began to rout and depopulate uh, the island we now refer to as Hispaniola, which houses today's Haiti and today's Dominican Republic. Uh, they began to rout and depopulate wildly throughout the Caribbean. But what's remarkable about this Spanish invasion, and it's a point that should be flagged here, as I go on to talk about why we're now speaking English, is that the Spanish had religious markers with regard to who would be prized settlers. Uh, it's not as if what has transpired in today's United States, that is to say, where Europeans of whatever religious stripe could find sanctuary in North America, uh, Spain had religious discrimination. And But at the same time, uh, this also meant that the position of Africans would be rather anomalous in the sense that if they profess Christ, uh, Catholicism, profess uh, the Catholic version of, Christ, uh, of Christianity, uh, they could be conquistadors, and which of course did not rule out, to put it mildly, the possibility that other Africans, heathens as they might be called, uh, could be enslaved, not to mention uh, those indigenous who were unable to flee the grasp of the Western European invaders. However, as you put a pin in 1492, put a pin in 1517, because that's the moment of the Protestant secession from Catholicism. That is to say, Martin Luther, a man we would refer to as German, rebelling against what he sees as various transgressions uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, corruption, uh, not least. And uh, he leads the Protestant secession, which by the 1530s takes London by storm. And uh, many in your audience may know the story about Henry VIII and the story about uh, how he wanted to have these divorces and the Catholics were not necessarily uh, amenable to these proposals and that greases the skids for his uh, joining the uh, Protestant secession. At the same time, it should be mentioned that with the Protestant secession, uh, Henry VIII and those who surrounded him were able to not only seize power from Catholics who had been wielding significant influence in London, but also able to seize a good deal of their property as well. However, this sets up a round robin of religious conflicts and, in fact, religious wars. Obviously, the Catholics had a significant advantage because there were simply more of them. Uh, they had a longer history, certainly stretching well before 1517. And so the Protestant Londoners were the scrappy underdogs with regard to this religious conflict with the Catholics. 
Certainly, if they wanted to feast at the bountiful table of settler colonialism, they would need to improvise, which they did. That is to say, rather than opting for a religious marker for settlements, the Londoners uh, were much more ecumenical, shall we say, ecumenical insofar as the pan-European world is concerned. What I mean by that is, recall how we had talked about the persecution of the Jewish population on the Iberian Peninsula, the Inquisition, whereby those who did not profess the Spanish version of Catholicism could be tortured and or liquidated. Uh, obviously, this provided an incentive for those Jewish folk who were able to flee. Interestingly enough, uh, England had expelled its Jewish population as early as the end of the 13th century, uh, 1291, to be more precise. But uh, as they were under the gun, figuratively speaking, in the 16th century, uh, they improvised. And uh, they were not uh, adverse to welcoming the Jewish population into their settlements, nor were they adverse necessarily uh, to welcoming uh, Catholics into their settlements. It would have been beyond imagination for the Iberians, particularly the Spanish, to welcome those who were Jewish and those who were Protestant into their settlements, unless they engaged in some sort of, some sort of camouflage, which many of them did. That is to say, they professed to be Catholic, but they actually they weren't. Uh, indeed, uh, I recount some of the stories that are still prevalent in New Mexico. Recall that that was an early Spanish settlement, now a U.S. state, where you have folks whose roots today stretch back to the late 16th century. Uh, in the privacy of their homes, they engage in certain kinds of practices that uh, evoke the practices of the Sephardim, of the Jewish population of the Iberian Peninsula. That is to say, uh, presumably what happened is that you had the Sephardim, they migrated hundreds of years ago uh, in Spanish ships, camouflaged as Catholics, but then in the privacy of their home, they would engage in traditional Jewish rituals. Uh, recall as well that if you look at the history of the current U.S. state known as Maryland, uh, it's well known that the original, many of the original settlers uh, in Maryland were actually Catholics. Uh, again, uh, that was a London settlement. Uh, it would have been quite unusual, to put it euphemistically, <laughs> for the Spanish to accommodate the Protestant settlers or non-camouflaged Jewish settlers uh, in their colonies. But uh, as we all know from living in what used to be a London settlement, speaking of those of us who are now in North America, that the London option basically won out. And that uh, this idea 
of religious markers for settlement uh, proved not to be the winning ticket, to put it mildly. I, I say that with full. Okay, I just want to add. So he talks about religious marker first. To, for someone to get into a privileged position in a society, you find out this is not a religious marking, is not a good uh, tool or good approach. And then he is going to talk about the skin color. And uh, uh, because, of, you know, I can pretend I'm a Catholic just by saying some verses, whatever, copy some Bible verses, then I can convince of a lie that I'm a Christian, right? I can easily do a religious passing, but it's very difficult for me to pretend to be a white person, right? So he's going to talk about first, this religious, you know, as a tool to mark individuals to be privileged or not so privileged is not working well. That South of the U.S. border, uh, overwhelmingly, there are Spanish speakers, other than uh, Brazil, which is predominantly uh, Portuguese speaking, other than Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, and to a degree, what we call Haiti, which is predominantly French speaking. Uh, but uh, it's also fair to say that the baton that was passed from London uh, to its spawn in North America, speaking of the nation now known as the United States of America, uh, proved to have the winning formula in terms of settler colonialism. Now, uh, before many of your audience become misty-eyed and begin to puff up their chests with regard to that notion, uh, keep in mind that there was a very significant downside. Recall downside obviously being a euphemism. Recall what I said a moment or two ago about uh, African conquistadors. Well, given this transition uh, in London settlements from using religion as a marker to pan-Europeanism, or what we refer to today as whiteness, uh, that is to say those who had been warring on the shores of Europe uh, English versus Irish, English versus Scots, English versus Wells, Welsh, uh, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Russian versus Lithuanian, Lithuanian versus Estonian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. I mean, the list is endless. All of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, they have a new identity, which is, quote, white, unquote. Now, this new identity our identity politics, to use the current 21st century phrase, had a real downside <laughs> for those who were not so described. Uh, that would include, obviously, the indigenous population. And, of course, as I'm sure your audience knows, the indigenous population under the Spanish flag, too, was horribly persecuted. But it had a particular momentous significance for the population of African descent. Uh, that is to say that obviously the overwhelming bulk of the enslaved African population crossing the Atlantic 
after the indigenous are swept aside, were not inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness. And uh, unlike, uh, say, Spanish Cuba, uh, for example, uh, they could not be viewed as conquistadors or the equivalent uh, under uh, the Union Jack. And uh, th this sets up uh, this system that today we refer to as white supremacy. Now, as I tell the story, uh, one of the difficulties in confronting, if not extirpating, a white supremacy is the deep religious roots. To return to a point that I made a moment or two ago, uh, you could easily make an argument that uh, white supremacy and the kind of racism that we've become familiar with in the United States has religious roots. Uh, in fact, in the first few pages of my book, I draw parallels between the kinds of uh, prosecutorial tropes that were deployed against the Jewish population before they were expelled in England. That is to say, uh, supposedly they had odors. Uh, there were those who said, or peculiar odors, I should say. There were those who tried to prevent them from being property owners. There were those who tried to prevent them from marrying across confessional lines. Uh, all manner of persecution. Uh, in many ways, that's just shipped uh, to the uh, African population as the scrappy underdogs that are the Protestants then begin to induct the Jewish population to the Hall of Halls of Whiteness. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because I'm sure there are those in your audience who are familiar with the ugly history of anti-Jewish fervor under the Union Jack and certainly under the Stars and Stripes, up to and including uh, the lynching of Leo Frank, the Jewish man in Georgia, about 105, 110 years ago. But uh, I'm talking about relativity. Uh, that is to say that, as I'm sure uh, many scholars of the Jewish experience would remind us, uh, many Jewish people found the United States to be a sanctuary <laughs> compared to what they were experiencing uh, in Germany, for example, or in Poland, for example or in Russia, for example. So we're talking about relativity. That's the point that needs to be reinforced. But in any case, uh, this question of the religious roots, the religious background of this notion of white supremacy, which is assumed a, what appears to be a, to some, appears to some to be a kind of permanence, although I don't necessarily accept that idea. Uh, I don't think you can begin to uh, understand that without understanding this kind of historical portrait that I am now seeking to paint. Yeah, and I think that that uh, was one of the things that struck me the most was this tie between kind of um, religi religiosity and how it transforms into um, another system of allegiance, but also um, identity. So, you know, with religion, you can, as you were saying, can hide your true religion and still look the same on the outside, whereas uh, racial markers are harder to 
to hide, impossible in some regards, right? And then um, the thing that I loved about this argument is this idea of this synthetic whiteness, right? And how the, the British or the London started to import white people, but found that problematic and had to find other things, other people uh, to kind of bring over to do their heavy lifting, if you were. Mm -hmm. uh, which you use the word gritty, which I think is such a fantastic word to describe some of the, the history we're talking about. So maybe you could talk about a little bit about how that process happens, right? How London starts with white people and then eventually moves into um, into the African slave trade. Mm. Well, as your comment suggested. Okay, I'm going to pause here. So you you probably heard it. Professor Horn saying this religious marking is not a winning formula. It's not working too well because a, a person can easily disguise as a Christian, a Catholic, and to get by and to obtain that privilege and all that. Plus, under the same scheme of a religious labeling, you have Africans to be placed in a position of power in the society that's a no-no also so all of a sudden this using skin color as a marking is way better winning formula right so he has mentioned in europe i mean you, you even today in europe the europeans don't call themselves oh you're white or you're whiter or you're the whitest they don't use that they just say oh i'm portuguese you are you are, you know, Bulgarians or whatever. They never have this word white. The white is the word, it's a transatlantic concept. It's a American concept. It's all these people, Europeans, I mean, when they, they fought each other like crazy in Europe. They, they hate each other in Europe like crazy for all kinds of reasons. But as soon as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, landed in America, they instantly find out using this skin color as a marking is way better. Okay? That including the Jewish people. So I find out to be fascinating. I was like, bingo. He used the word. Professor Gerald Horn used the word. Pan-Europeanism. I love it. So I think there's a pan-Europeanism or Eurocentric is equivalent of the word white in the judicial white privilege. Now I'm going to play a shorter clip when they talk about the the uh, I'm sorry, I need to pronounce that word properly. Elasticity of whiteness. Okay? This go back to the religion, Vilat, because he started with religion. The thing as well is the elasticity of this concept of whiteness. Uh, and, and, and I should say I'm not the first scholar to to address this question, just to, to be fair. Um, but rather than <laughs> issuing oral footnotes, let me just con continue with this narrative. Uh, the elasticity uh, of, of whiteness. I mean, uh, for example, 
and, and it's very tricky too. You can still see the religious roots. Ralph Nader, the man who ran for president some years ago is still in the land of the living. Uh, he is of Lebanese origin, but Lebanese Christian origin. And so therefore, in the popular sense at least, he's viewed as, quote, white, unquote. However, if a leader of Hezbollah, the Lebanese resistance movement of 2023, migrates to the United States, presumably Muslim, uh, he would be considered third world. Uh, or, or, or to look at, um, you might help to help me with this pronunciation, the woman who is the host on the Today Show, or Hoda, K-O-T-B. Kotib? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I think Kotib, maybe? Okay. Yep. She is, of course, of uh, Egyptian Christian <clears throat> origins. And so, therefore, because of her U.S. accent, perhaps her religious background, uh, she could, uh, I think she's at least popularly constructed as school white, unquote. Or to, 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 my third example would be Queen Noor of Jordan, who was <clears throat> married to the former king, Hussein. Uh, she was born Lisa Halabi in the United States, Syrian Christian <clears throat> background, considered an so-called all-American girl, given her uh, tenure at Princeton University. When she marries the king, she converts to Islam. I dare say that if she crossed the Atlantic uh, today, uh, this Sunni Islamic woman would not necessarily be seen as an all-American woman, even though in her early life she was seen as an all-American girl. And so the only way to sort of unravel this is to really look at the religious roots of the construction of, of race and the construction of whiteness. And at the same time, it's important to point out that um, this construction has had elasticity. Um, those who are Arab can be inducted into the halls of whiteness, especially if they have religious roots like Ralph Nader or the former Lisa Hollaby. And those who are Muslim would have more difficulty. Although, of course, we know, based upon what we've said about Spain, that there is a certain camouflage. And that, uh, I guess, if you're a, a Muslim woman who does not cover the head and you have a U.S. accent, you presumably could be inducted into the halls of whiteness. But if you cover your head, I'm not so sure. All right. So... Again, I have always found out this guy to be brilliant. He is the closest scholar to Malcolm X, as far as I'm concerned. I have listened to many of his recordings, and this one really solved my problem, how to define white in the judicial white program. So, he Peter. has said, uh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let you speak, just let, let me finish, okay? Okay. My takeaway is this. He said, Europeans with old stripes, often at wars with each other, found sanctuary in America for being white. White is the symbol of a pan-Europeanism 
in America. Just think of naturally. If there is a pan-Americanism, we all accept that, right? There is a people who are considered themselves pan-Africanism. Chairman Yashitala, the African Socialist, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the African People's Socialist Party, the chairman, he is a pan-Africanist. So you have a pan-Africanist, you must have a pan-Europeanist. Nothing wrong with that. The slogan for Japan, the empire of Japan during the Second World War is called Asia for Asiatics. That's a pan-Asianism. So there's nothing wrong to say there is a pan-Europeanism. Just like there's nothing wrong to say there's a white nationalist because there is black nationalist. There's a Muslim nationalist. Then there will be Christian nationalist. Okay, both of these groups seek so-called sovereignty from their respective grievances against perceived unjust government. They all have the equal rights to say so under the First Amendment. All right, so like I said, there's a Christian nationalist too. If you say this uh, nation of Islam is a uh, a Muslim nationalist organization. Yeah, I, I take that. I accept that. But there is Christian Christian nationalists. Right? So that's what he said. He also said the white labeling, racial labeling is much easier to enforce and it is the winning formula for the American colonialism. That's important. I have always said white privilege is the remaining ember of a white supremacy, of a colonialism. You know, white privilege is much hidden. Not, it's not overt. It's an, it's not it's not a pronounced genocidal policy. It's very very clever. Okay, and he also said even today, even today, religion is still being used. As determining whether that person is a white or not, he called the elasticity of whiteness. Right? Remember that. And uh, lastly, I always had this question. I have asked uh, Katie Katie Helper about this: whether Jewish people should be considered white or not. Because my lawyer friend is a Jewish person. He always he told me. He said, Peter, I never consider myself a white person. I always consider myself a Semite. But from learning to uh, listening to Professor uh, 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 Gerald Horn, I would say Jewish should be considered white because except today's Israel, Europe is a Jews only known ancestral land. Most Jews are coming from Europe. Most Jews are mostly Europeans. Therefore, they should be considered white in America. And that's why Malcolm X has called, uh, you know, a few Jewish uh, uh, activists within the African-American organizations as uh, white liberals. And Malcolm X does not like them. So that is the my takeaway from 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 this clip. So because it, Jer, Professor Gerald Holmes solved my problem of defining white 
in the judicial white privilege. I've always said white privilege is a American concept, not anywhere else. And he explained it. It's a transatlantic. As soon as Europeans of different stripes, even at wars with each other, they came here to the America, they all very happy. Relatively speaking, no matter what hardship they experienced in Europe, here, the racial labeling really put them in a good spot. So with that, go ahead, Vlad. Thank you. You said uh, Je Professor Je uh, Gerald Horn, right? Gerald Horn, yes. Horn as in H-O-R-N? H-O-R-N-E. He also is a lawyer. Oh, okay. I did not know that. He also is a lawyer. I I'm, oh, okay. I'm extremely pleased to know that because uh, yeah. he is a history professor, but he at least was a lawyer before. So but I said, what I, I do? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I want to tell you, this thing about white privilege and whiteness is not only a U.S. concept. It, it spans across from Europe in the sense of the U.K. Just looking at the countries that the U.K. left, New Zealand, Australia, the U.S., and Canada, right? And any other country I could have missed, forgive me. It, it, it flows the line. And this is their issue. And this is their issue. But it's there. And you see it. You see it when you're in these countries, you see it, the attitudes they have. I know. You don't see it now a lot like before because a lot of progress has been made to talk about these things and, and racism and all. They're very lefty, right? They're very liberal. They're very Actually, uh, well, I cannot hear you that well. Uh, maybe you want to adjust your Can you hear me better now? Yes, better not. Okay, sorry. I, hear, I did not even got anything you said. Just uh, go ahead. Uh, okay, real quick. So what I was saying is that the the span of white privilege, whiteness, can be seen in all the countries that the UK left, from Australia to New Zealand to Canada and the United States. It's almost impossible not to not to see it. In fact, when 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 pan European or pan pan Anglo. Uh, Angloism, if I could say it like that, okay, it sticks together. It it looks for its its own kind within that circle. Uh, okay, yeah. you know, because this interview is uh, let me see how long this thing is. It's uh, thirty two minutes. So I only played the half of it, right? He actually also go ahead and read it. Uh, watch the whole thing. He actually talked about the fact that in New Zealand and Australia, uh, the government can see this. Is that they all living on the seized, seized land from the native people. So it's a government acknowledgement. U.S. does not acknowledge that. U.S. is like, we discover this land, it's ours. No, but the, but the attitude of the, of the white man in America is, we beat you, so it's ours. Yeah, yeah whatever it is. So my, my goal it's, tonight is to it's, find it's, the word. We we took it from you, and we recognize what we did wrong. Where the U.S. has always been historically, we took you from it, but we kicked your ass, so we have a right to own it. You see the difference? The the Anglo-Saxon American, white American, tends to be more more arrogant in that, or at least that was his history tended to be. Now the newer generations are not like that, but nevertheless, that's what the left prides on. Oh, white privilege, you're a colonialist, and all this other bullshit. 
that you try to blame the other generations that had absolutely nothing with colonizing, you know? But that's another story. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it. So go ahead, Fahim wants to say something. No, I just uh, wanted to let you know, uh, Peter, I, uh, with regards to uh, the folks from uh, the Middle East uh, being considered as white, I posted a very short link. It's uh, a factual, but at the same time, it's said in a very comedic uh, uh, way that I am very... Uh, positive that everybody would uh, enjoy uh, listening uh, to. And it has a uh, reflection on the racism in uh, uh, the U.S., but uh, it basically uh, goes to show uh, of, of why a Middle Eastern, there's no part in the census where it says, uh, uh, like, you know, you've got like white, black, Asian, and, but there's no Middle Eastern. Uh, so I, oh, yes, well, hey, great point. I want to share this with you. Uyghurs, right? They, uh, the the U.S. is accusing uh, uh, Uyghurs being uh, uh, mistreated by by the Chinese government. I I have a I when I was uh, back in China, I had students coming from Xinjiang province. Uh, I mean uh, Xinjiang autonomous autonomous region. By the way, a quick question, uh, uh, Peter, not to interrupt, uh, but. Uh, uh, is uh, Xinjiang uh, also a, a sort of, uh, uh, does it geographically, I mean, uh, fall into the Altai uh, area? Yes. I know. Yeah. Okay. I consider those people white people, but, but they okay. will not be considered white people in America because uh, yeah, they yeah, are not yeah. Christian, right? So you're, you, uh, this go back to, you, you said Middle Easterners, uh, they're not considered white because the, the religious is the factor here, right? It's a, no, uh, as a professor, Gerald Holland perfectly no, plays it. They're considered white. Yeah. They, I, I, that's why I posted the, uh, the, uh, link for uh, you. They're considered white and you, and it's very, it, it's, it has to, uh, to do with the U.S. history in the U.S. very much yes. of what you were talking about. So exactly. I, that's why I was saying yeah. that I, Highly recommend, and it's super uh, also. So whenever you get a uh -huh. chance, uh, I, I highly recommend playing it. I will. Yes, I, I absolutely. Actually, let me just copy this thing, so I will. I will watch it tomorrow. Okay. Uh, so now, uh, anything else, Fahim? I don't need to cut you short. Go ahead. Uh, uh, that's it. That's it. Okay. So I, I, I want to say is uh, just include in, in conclusion. Uh, uh, by the way, Velad, I'm going to, since you joined late, I'm going to do some Father's Day, repeat my Father's Day's message, uh, what, which I talked about earlier in the show. So I think in conclusion is this, white privilege is uniquely American because white is entirely transatlantic and American. In Europe, the Europeans don't call themselves, oh, you are black, you are, I'm white. They don't. <laughs> they don't do it at all. <laughs> It's only when they came here, there is this societal system, governmental construct, that being white is kind of a currency. It's a specialized word in the town context of a colonialism in the U.S. It is less related to a person's skin color. It is entirely equal to pan-Europeanism and Eurocentricity. This 
actually goes back to that moral and the political chart of the inhabited world, because that chart is a Eurocentric, pan-Europeanism, and it's also made in America. That moral and political chart is made in America. That's Americans' view of the world. It's a, you know, it's a Eurocentric view. Also, pan-Europeanism is an ongoing practice. If you Google the word pan-Europeanism, NATO will show up. EU, European Union will show up. Pan-Europeanism is practiced globally by the European nations. Nothing wrong with that. Just like African unions, they practice pan-Africanism. Nothing wrong with that. Right, so bringing pan-Europeanism into the U.S. to discuss that domestically, you can easily use the word "white" to replace that longer word called the pan-Europeanism. So once again, this will trace back, you know. And I truly believe this. Uh, going back to Heidi, uh, what Heidi said. This justice system in America doesn't work. Totally corrupt. Now I can trace back to Europe. Europeans, they fought each other like crazy. White on white wars. Constant. First World War, Second World War, now the Ukraine War. They never had a justice system that actually functioning among the nations. How you can trust them to have a justice system in America, in a multiracial society that we have? We don't, because they don't have a fucking clue. The Europeans. Now, I personally believe, if we follow the law by its letter and the spirit, we actually can all get along. I actually do. But the reality is that. It's just bad. I have used Trump as an example. Now I'm going to close with the Father's Day thing that uh, Vilat talks about. Vilat, you didn't join me earlier. I've talked the Father's Day. I have said, Happy Father's Day. That if you are not in the war zone of Ukraine, or you are near the mass shootings by fathers in America, because in this week approaching today's Father's Day, there's two mass shootings by fathers. One in Ohio is a grandfather shooting three children dead. Two of them, his own grandchildren. One in Tennessee, a father killed three of his own children. Guess what? Both shooters are white. So I'm doing the show to save the white race. Because if the right fathers kill their own children like that, and some of them will kill themselves afterwards, the lifespan, the average lifespan of a white population will continue to decline. I have always said, when mass shooting like this happen, we need to dig deeper into our justice system. But as you know. 
the white liberals will bring the cart out first. What that cart is, is called the gun. G-U-N. They will not go to for the horses. What drive these fathers, again, to kill his own fucking children? If this father killed a neighbor because the neighbor's playing music too loud, it's bad, but at least I can understand. How you can pull your trigger to your own damn children? Someone have to give me explanation. The public deserve to know. Absolutely. And I just wanted to throw this in there on a more broad scope, objective level. Um, I had heard something about Janet Yellen saying something about how the dollar is still strong because we have law and order in this society. Oh, really? <laughs> and, she said that? Yeah. Oh, yes. The insider yeah. trading by the by the uh, lawmakers in on Capitol exactly. Hill. Oh, I was like, "Wow, that's great!" <laughs> Our yeah. regular people, every show, will be very happy, very about the law and order in this country, right? <laughs> yes, the hypocrisy makes it even more apparent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, guys, you know, I don't want you guys feel depressed. I'm doing this show just to you know explain things so you know what's going on, including with that. Again, you know. I'm not being critical of a Christianity. I'm just saying this historically happened. And we are not in good shape today. We're not. Not for anyone, regardless of your skin color. Right? So 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 that's that. I mean again, I, I thank you guys uh, so much for being here and uh and uh, just a little forecast that I praised Justice Kavanaugh. I know he was accused with something. I want to avoid those uh uh, 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 topics when I do not have a good grasp on what happened, but uh, I have listened to his confirmation hearing. I appreciate the fact he uh, he stressed this word process. When you do, you want to do the job right, you have to do follow a orderly process to determine the validity of things you're doing. I truly appreciate that. I can apply that to Rosa Parks to Donald Trumps. And I myself have to follow that same thing by defining what white means while I'm doing the show. So I'm glad I can do that. Yeah. And it, uh, next, one, go ahead. I was ahead. just going to say it's like getting arrested and then getting charged with resisting arrest. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you have to say resisting arrest, but you have to say arrest for what to start with, right? You can just say, oh, he resists arrest, you know. You know, that is, uh, you know, just lying to the FBI. Well, if you don't have an underlying crime, why you, that person need to lie to the FBI? You know, so I have said, you know, so Heidi, you are, you are correct. I, I don't blame you when you said you, you likely will vote for Trump. I'm not blaming you. I actually forecast this back in August of last year. I'm saying Trump is giving an opportunity to be beat all odds. Americans likes underdogs. Regardless of your political persuasion. Americans love underdogs. If Trump can beat this, he will be the next president. Not, not just that, because of the derangement, the establishment mask is slipping so far off their face and everybody can see it now. Yep. Yep. So, you know, 
Again, you know, I know Villa is a bigger Trump supporter. I know Jenny is. I said, I, like, like Tucker Carlson said, he hates Trump passionately. Me too. But legally speaking, I want to defend him because he, whatever douchebag you think he is, he should be treated equally under the law. And when the government is the lawbreaker, he got a good chance. So, so, have a great oh, go ahead, Heidi. Oh no, I, oh, I was just back gonna again, say Heidi. thanks. I worry Huh? I, I welcome back again. I worried about you. <laughs> I was <laughs> Heidi's so cool and calm. How come she disappears? Oh yeah, I was just hanging out with my dad. He's he's getting old, so I wanted to be able to spend time with him. Nice. Um but then yeah, but then he went back uh to the farm in Wisconsin, so I'm back to being you know, having some, you know, alone time. But thank you. I appreciate the welcome back. And all I was going to say is thanks for the show uh, and thanks for letting me participate. I appreciate it. Uh, Fahim, by the way, I will be, uh, let me watch that video and I will play it. Uh, probably will be playing in the, on uh, my Wednesday, Thursday series called the uh, geopolitics is ethnopolitics. Uh, but let me read that. Uh, let me watch that myself first and I'll, I will, I, I will go from there. How's that? All right. Thank you guys again very, so very much. And uh, I will see you next time. Good night.